It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Okay, it's 2011. I woke up this morning and I realized, hey, if you could have a soundtrack to your life, what song would you start off things with? Well, this is what I came up with to start off the Money Guy Show for today. And this is kind of unique. So if you're first time listening to the Money Guy Show, this is not the way we normally start the show, but brand new year in a great mood. We had a great 2010. This is kind of what I felt like we need to kick things off with today. You ready, Bo? I'm ready. Let's do it. Wouldn't it be good if you could just have a soundtrack to your life? I mean, where when you're feeling in a good mood, you can just put this type of stuff on. If anybody doesn't know, this is a classic. This is probably classical music to, to Bo for the younger people. This is Tone Loke, Wild Thing. I remember when um, this song came out, I was driving already. I thought it was the bomb. So let, let's actually get to talking about finances. Let me cut, let me cut Tone down here. Hang on. Working all week. Yeah, working all week. Okay, <laughs> let's get to the real stuff. This is the Money Guy Show. I'm your host, Brian Preston. We have a good time here, but this is not our day job. This is I'm actually a fee-only financial planner down here on the south side of Atlanta. I own a wealth management firm called Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. I am a CPA, a certified financial planner, and a personal financial specialist, which means I'm a CPA that does financial planning. We're also a member of NAPFA. That's the fee-only organization. I mean, we don't sell insurance. We don't take commissions. Um, we're completely fee-only here. And we started doing this podcast back in 2006, and it has kind of taken off. And we really appreciate you guys tuning in. Go check out our website. It's money-guy.com. Um, you can also sign up to get, uh, get a free membership where you'll get a few extra free shows that you can go pull up in the archives. Or if you really like what you see, you can go get into the premium section. Um, it doesn't have a big cost to it, but it allows you then to get to some model portfolios as well as some internal research that we share with clients and so forth. But I'm excited, Bo. And let me go ahead and make, give an intro to you. I have my associate, Bo Hansen, another financial advisor we have here at Preston and Cleveland. Bo, you have anything you want to kick off for 2011? I'm just excited. I think it's going to be a good year. Well, we have a good show today, and I'm not going. To, I felt like the last show we did because it was during the holidays. We had a lot of. Um, we weren't consistent. We do the show every two weeks. By the way, if you're brand new, got a brand new iPod, iPhone, whatever MP3 device you have that you're listening to us on, um, welcome. Uh, we, we're going to try to jump right in because I felt like we had too much fluff on the last show. A lot of good information, but too much fluff. Now, I will tell you, last show got a lot of comments and a lot of feedback sent to us via email. I'm going to take the end of the show. Hopefully, we won't spend too much on the, the, the meat of the show today where I won't have time to do that. But I'm counting on at the end of the show to kind of go over some of those comments because you guys put a lot of thought. Um, you wrote some really long comments that I, I feel like. I need to give you some feedback on it. So we're going to do that at the end of the show. So our brand new listeners or the people who like getting to the meat of things can, can be right there with us and, and we're going to jump in. So the, what we're going to be talking about today, you know, I love consumer reports. Consumer reports is awesome because it allows a person like me who I'm a modified tightwad, meaning that in light, when I was younger, didn't have any money. I had perfected the $7 date in high school. I mean, I had things figured out. But as I've made more money, um, I'm not as much as a tightwad. I'm giving this disclaimer because Bo was going to pick on me if I don't because he's going to say I'm not a tightwad anymore. But I am. I like to stretch every dollar that I spend to make sure it goes 3 to 5% better than the average person's. Sometimes I, I think it goes 20% better than the average person. But we try to stretch every dollar here. And the, and the cover story for Consumer Reports... Um, for the February issue was 15 ways to never run out of money. And me loving Consumer Reports just for how it makes me a skilled consumer, I couldn't help. I was like, well, this is a perfect topic for Bo and myself to kind of give our two cents on, you know, on, on what suggestions they're making on these 15 ways. And what I liked about the way Consumer Reports did this is they also broke it out by where you are in life. Are you a young person? Are you a middle-aged person? Are you already in retirement? Doesn't matter. They kind of gave you enough information that it hits everybody. So this is going to be an all-ages type of podcast. If you've got children, hey, tell them about the money guy. Because that's how we grow here is by you giving the word of mouth. No big corporate marketing machine behind us. 
We only grow by the success that you guys bring us. So um, let's jump right into this. Like I said, it's called 15 Ways to Never Run Out of Money, Savings, Investment, and Lifestyle Strategies for All Ages. Bo and I both have had a chance to go through this. And um, I liked it. They kind of even started the story out, kind of giving you some words of encouragement on why you probably didn't want to jump out of the market. It says, between late 2008 and 2010, the Standard & Poor's 500 index rose in a healthy double digits to the point that many investing stalwarts who stayed in stocks recouped the money they'd lost in that period, and then some. The national savings rate, income minus taxes, and household expenses rebounded from a negative number in 2006 to almost 6% in October 2010, according to the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis. That's that, huge. That, that last part really excites me because I, I will tell you guys, when we started doing this show in 2006, I had, I had done several shows talking about how we had a negative savings rate. And that's just not healthy. And I know we were all just, you know, punch drunk at the time then on our home equity because, um, you know, our houses were going up 10% a year. And it seemed like, hey, God's not making more real estate. We're going to be rich off just our land. Who needs to save? We'll just buy these huge McMansions. We'll be okay. We've obviously realized that was a house of cards, literally. And um, now we've, we've, as Americans, we've kind of kicked up that savings rate to, to 6%. That, that's a pretty healthy rate. It's still not, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the hyper savings rate. If, you, if you've ever read The Millionaire Next Door or, or any of Dr. Stanley's books, one of the things he talks about that differentiates uh, the average person from a hyper saver is if you can put away 15 to 20% of your gross income, that's before taxes, you're going to be in a great place. But 6%, not too bad. I mean, it's, it's not the 15 to 20, but still not too bad. So the first section that Consumer Reports brought up in this article was starting out. These are the young people. It, 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 this is, it says, establish these habits early in life can be a positive impact on your finances. In their very first section of the 15 ways, they say, live modestly. And this also ties into Dr. Stanley and his millionaire next door. Because it says, retirees in our survey were most satisfied with their situation, credited living modestly as among the best steps they had made earlier in life. And, and by the way, the whole basis for this article is Consumer Reports did a survey to 24,270 online, online subscribers that were age 55 and up. And kind of asked them, the ones that were successful, what were the key items? And that's that's where a lot of this is coming from. And starting out early was an important thing. Bo, you're, you're kind of in that young um, starting out early class. Well, unfortunately, my, my, sta my station in life comes up later and it kind of depressed <laughs> me a little bit. But do you have any insight on, on starting out early? And well, I'm going to kind of let you take the lead on some of these younger cases. Here, here's what I get excited about is that we did a, actually, it was me, I believe you were out of town. We did a show called Starting Early, Staying Ahead a few months ago that I spearheaded. And um, it's really exciting when these great articles that come out in Consumer Reports kind of solidify things that we've talked about in the past. Because what this hit on a lot of stuff that I talked about. Um, and the one thing when we meet with clients and we talk to successful individuals and we say, well, you know, if you could have changed something, what would you have done differently? They said, I would have figured it out earlier. And, and I see this with my friends all the time. They're just, they're not putting a focus where necessarily where I'm putting a focus. And I think that for a lot of parents who have children my age, they struggle with this. How do I get my, you know, my teenagers, my early 20s, how do I get my kids to start doing the right thing right on? And, and sitting in this article is a great way to do that. Well, you know what I always try to do to get people addicted to, to the whole savings thing? Are you, do you know where I'm going with Oh, that? I know exactly where you're going. I always tell people, and write this down, if you don't have your pen and paper, go back, and maybe Bo will even put this on the website so you can go check it out at money-guy.com. The Wealthy Barber. I've said it, you know, all my long-time listeners are like, gosh, is he talking about the Wealthy Barber again? But I'm telling you, if you're a young person or if you're an adult and, and you've got children or grandkids that you want to get them addicted to saving money, Wealthy Barber, because it reads like a storybook. It's not your traditional textbook. It's, it came out many, many years ago. Um, if somebody has a, a great replacement who's read The Wealthy Barber, maybe there's a brand new book that kind of does the same thing, but has brought it up even into the you know the modern period. Because this book is, I, I, I see it right behind you, Bo. I mean, when was it first published? I mean, we're probably going on 20-something years now. Can you see it? But... I think that's a great thing. 1995. So yeah, we're 15 years away from that. 
Yeah, so so it, it's a 16-year-old book at this point, but still priceless, uh, you know, and timeless, I should say, on, on, on the on the data that's coming to you. So go check that book out. I'll get Bo to put a link up on the site. Um, the next section, Bo, for the younger people, it says keep to a budget. Now, I have some input, but I wanted to get you, let you kind of lead that off. What, what do you think about keeping a budget? I, I think it's absolutely imperative because this, this is what happened for me. You know, I graduated from college a number of years ago, and um, and I remember that from where I graduated, I, I worked part-time all the way through school, and I graduated making X amount of dollars. Um, well, then I started out in the real world, and I got a salary, and it was a generous salary, and I started out at, you know, three or four X number of dollars. And so when you come into sort of this, I don't want to call it a windfall, but when all of a sudden you go from making nothing to actually making a substantial income, it is hard to kind of pinpoint where all this money goes. All of a sudden you can start going out to eat as much as you want, going to the movies. You know, your $7 date turns into a $30 date, and, and there's no real issue because you've got the money to pay for it. And what happens is you lose track of that. So, so what I started doing, and I've talked about this before, is I started doing a, a every, I track every dollar I spend just on an Excel spreadsheet. I keep at the house. I save my receipts. Nerd. And um, oh, it's nerdy. I can tell you, <laughs> I can tell you where every dime has gone for the past three years. You dork. Um, but that helps a ton. It really does. It helps you set those savings goals, and it, it really does help you get to that fifteen to twenty percent magic number. What I liked what um, Consumer Reports did here is that they said create a basic spending plan or budget. At simplest, a budget involves splitting your expenses into have-tos and want-tos and paying the have-tos first. Now, I'll tell you, when I hear the word budget, I kind of cringe. I, I'm a financial guy, you know, love you know, love dealing with finances, but I hate budgeting. I, I'm just going to be straight, and I think a lot of the public hates budgeting as well. So I don't want you to think when you hear the word budget, that means that you have to go to to the level where you're doing Excel spreadsheets and things like that. It really is as simple as figuring out what the haves and what the wants are, and you, you know, and then paying yourself first—that is such an important thing. Is if you can get in the habit of saving money. So much of of what the press covers these days is all the negative habits. You know, you got drug habits, you got eating habits. You know, where people get addicted to to eating and they're overweight. You got people who get addicted to meth and drugs and and alcohol and all these things. You never hear anybody, and I say this all the time, never hear anybody talking about that dreadful habit of addicted to saving money. And the reason is they're loaded. So, I mean, it's, um, it, it's, it's pay yourself first. If you can start, if you're a young person, start saving, your, saving early. It's going to be tremendous. I also want to give you a quick tell of woe for all my college graduates, high school graduates who get out there in the workforce. Very similar to what Bo was just talking about. When you're in high school, college, and you graduate and you get your first paying job that gets you real wages out there, you know, working wages, um, you're used to living off of college or high school money where $10 can last you a long time. So then when you start making $30,000, you're like, I'm rich. But what you don't take into account, because you do that elementary math where you say, just like when I was in, you know, uh, fourth grade and I won that go-kart and I knew what my dad made and I said, gosh, he ought, he ought to be able to buy me 30 golf go-karts. But it, that's not the way the real world works. You have to realize you start making 30 grand doesn't mean you can go out. The I, I have this friend that graduated from Auburn. I'm a UGA grad, but there was this guy that graduated with my best friends from high school from Auburn, made great money, went to work for IBM getting big money. I remember I came out of school making $28,000 a year as a CPA, as an accounting graduate. Um, he came out of school making close to 50. This is, this is big money back in, in the, in the nineties. So what does he do? He buys a Camaro. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what cracked me up is that he thought that, you know, buying a Camaro was a perfectly good idea, but what he's, what he wasn't thinking about was the cost of insurance and all the other things that go with that. And I think I see a lot of people, and I'm sure, Bo, you being in this young stage of life, you see a lot of your friends come out and make bad financial mm -hmm. decisions. And that's what you've got to realize. Taxes are going to eat a big chunk of it up. Social Security taxes are going to eat a big chunk of it up. Medicare, all that stuff. And then when you start paying rent, when you start paying utilities, you start paying your cell phone bill, you don't have as much money left over as I think you probably originally thought. So don't get yourself, don't put that bear on your shoulders of early debt. And that's the biggest thing. That's why I give you that tell of woe of my, my friend that um, graduated from Auburn. He's, he still cracks me up is that he, he went and bought a Camaro 
right out of college, which um, says a lot. And, and Brian, you just said something that triggers something, and I may be jumping ahead of the gun a little bit, but one thing, if you have, if you're a parent and you have children um, who are in their 20s or just starting out after college and you do want to help them out, um, there's nothing wrong with that, but there's there's a responsible way to do this. And I'll tell you that we have we have clients. They have three children who are who are young twenties, young to mid twenties, and um and the three concerns were the the car insurance because because two of them are boys. Um, and car insurance for young for young men is expensive. Um, cell phone and then health insurance. Those were kind of the three things. Well. There's actually, there are workarounds in the system, such as, you know, the, with the recent passing of the health care, if your children are under 26, you can put them back on their health insurance. There's nothing wrong with doing that, but if you're going to, have the kids stroke you a check every month. If you want to leave the kids on the, on the family plan for the cell phone so it only costs them 40 bucks instead of 100 bucks a month, make them pay you for it. So you're still helping them out, and it's not really a subsidy, but they're at least covering that additional cost to you. Um, the, before we move on to the next thing, it says um, free budgeting applications. I always like to give these free web links. It has Mint.com and then Google Docs has some great budgeting tools that you can go grab a hold of too. And then it says, and this is a big one, is it says and make sure you include payments into an emergency fund that you'll have at least six months worth of household expenses saved up. So that, that's a good thing. You want to build up that rainy day fund just in case something goes wrong. You don't want to be caught um, in a bad situation. Um, the next tip it gives for younger people is start saving early. And we kind of hit on that a little bit with this whole topic, but it says retirees who begin saving and planning early, say in their 30s, had a greater net worth of $1.1 million on average, compared with 868000 for those who waited until their 40s, and then 651000 for those who started later than their 40s. I was disappointed that Consumer Reports left out the 20s. I was thinking the same thing. Because, um, I mean, you think about it. If 30s, 1.1, and you know the power of compounding interest, that 20s, instead of it being a $200,000, probably $200,000 difference, probably a three four $400,000 difference. I bet that number would be well, you know, close to $1.5 million, depending upon how this all worked out for the people who started in their 20s. And, and the reason they probably didn't put it in there, I'm going to be straight up with you. Not a lot of 20-year-olds are saving money. And that's why they probably have such a small t sample of their total survey. But if you can be the exception to the rule instead of being the average, going to set yourself up for an extraordinary future. And, and that's what I try to – we had a young prospect in who had come into a windfall a few weeks ago, and I was we were trying to let her know what a huge opportunity she had and I'm just so worried, just like most people who get money at a young age, not going to do the responsible thing. And that's why you, if you can start and save early, you're going to set yourself up for a lot of things. Um, it also said, you know, the average for a lot of people when you start working, you put the, the, the basic 3% for retirement. If you could get that up to, you know, to 10% plus your employer's match, you might be closer to that 15 to 20% that I was just bragging about earlier about being a hyper saver. So that, that, that's kind of what it closes out with um, the, the younger people. Uh, I guess it has one more section. It says, don't forget about the benefits of Roth, um, you know, your versions of your 401ks but, and 403bs, but also just Roth in general, the Roth IRAs, because a lot of younger people definitely aren't hitting those income li limits of 120000 for single people and 177000 for married couples. So they can still do Roth IRAs where you can do $5,000 a year, and they're completely tax-free. Remember, anything that has Roth on it, your Roth 401ks, your Roth 403bs, as well as your Roth IRAs, tax-free forever. You don't get a tax deduction now. But that's okay, because when you're young, you're probably in a low tax bracket. So let's go ahead and stick it to the man. So in 20, 30 years, when that money you put in is worth four to five times what you put in there, you can stub your nose at the government and be like, I don't have to pay you. What an incredible benefit that would be. So the next group, you, you ready for this title? <laughs> the middle years. <laughs> And it says in this age range, roughly the late 30s through the mid 50s, and, and it's kind of a sad thing when I when I first I'm you know I'm getting closer to 40 than anything else out there now. Unfortunately, um, as as I tell people, I used to feel like I was ahead of the curve because I, I started this company when I was 28, and now I feel like I'm right slap in the middle of the curve. So it's kind of a it's been kind of a, a humbling experience over the years as the older I get. Instead of being ahead of the curve on doing things, uh, you know, early and, and 
being apart now, I'm kind of just right there. I feel like in the middle of the curve. But this is the middle years. This is me. And um, their first topic is, they said, diversify your holdings. It says having a variety of investments, stocks, bonds, and real estate, among others, correlated highly with net worth in their survey. And it said retirees with seven or more types of investments had an average net worth of $1.4 million. Those with three or fewer had an average net worth of 678000 Now, when I read this, I was sitting there thinking, I was like, I hope a lot of people don't think this is one a, a magical hocus pocus thing <laughs> where if they just go in there with their starting out, like you're a brand new or middle, middle-aged person like myself. God, that sounds old <laughs> saying that. Um, just because you list seven asset classes doesn't mean you're going to be automatically a millionaire. This is more of a cause and effect type thing where when you have seven figures in your net worth, you can. It, there's a benefit to spreading your money out over many different asset classes. Um, it doesn't mean that if you have ten thousand dollars and you go put that ten thousand in seven different investment classes, it's all magically going to turn into um, one point four million dollars. Doesn't work that way. It's just a cause and effect. When you don't have much money going on, you can't. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, logistically to have a lot of different asset classes. So I, I thought that was in there. Also, I would add that you really, not only do you want to diversify your holdings, Bo and I have talked about this several times, you want to diversify your taxability. Um, we've been working on this even with my own personal finances is that I have a lot of tax-deferred assets, meaning a lot of retirement assets and SEP IRAs, 401ks, and 403bs and these type of things. You might want to have a good diversification of taxable income, meaning after tax, meaning like joint accounts, individual accounts, meaning very liquid assets. And then you want to have a mix of tax deferred, which are those those you know accounts that you get the, the tax break when you make contributions to them, like your 401k and your 403bs and things like that. And then you want to have tax-free assets. Those are those Roth accounts where you don't get a tax benefit now, but in the future, they're completely tax-free. And the reason you want to do this is, Depending upon, just like we've seen in the last year, there's been a lot of debate about tax policy. And that's what we talked about in the last podcast. And I'll touch on that at the end of the show. But a lot of data about tax policy, a lot of discussion about tax policy. It wouldn't it be nice if you have a you know a nice diversification of where your money is. So depending upon what's going on with the tax policy, you can go pull out of the account that's going to be most beneficial. So that's something that I think a lot of people don't talk about. Um, but it would be a very, very important planning tool for you in the future. The next section for the middle-agers, the old guys like me, is prioritize retirement over college. Bo, you said it's nice when you hear something that you've said earlier, you know, in a, in a later I call that the money guy echo, is what we say. Is you know, it's when, it's when people are saying the same things that we're saying here on the Money Guy Show. Is, and they talked about, you know, you can borrow money for college, but you can't borrow toward your retirement. How many times have we said that in our podcast? And it's true. You know, and I, I see that when prospects call me sometimes. They'll tell me I'm loading up the kids' 529 plans, and then I ask them a few questions about their own retirement, and they're just not taking care of themselves completely. And I know we love our children more than anything else in the world. I have two daughters. Love those girls. I'm wrapped around their pinkies or whatever <laughs> you want to call. Bo picks on me all the time about how things are. I mean, I can give you a perfect example this morning. My my wife and daughter pick out, you know, her school clothes at night. Well, I go in there this morning because I'm the wake up guy, and she's like, "Daddy, I don't like that outfit anymore." You know, and at first I was like, "You know, you, you put it on. It's okay. Y'all picked this out last night." She, no, it doesn't look good, Dad. Oh, okay, you go pick out. You know, so I break <laughs> Jennifer get and I get in there, and my wife goes, "Why is she wearing that?" I was like, "She didn't want to wear what y'all picked out." So you know, it was one of those things where I just you just. You love your kids, you compromise, <laughs> and you give in and do these things. But I'm telling you, this is one you can't compromise on. You've got to save for your retirement first. Um, because if, you're, if you can't afford to, to max out your retirement, um, you, you probably need to be very careful. We've done a podcast on this in the past. Um, it, it probably wasn't too long ago. If you want to go look in our archives, give you some thoughts on the, on the college planning. So that moves on to the, the next section. These are the people even a little older than me is um, the pre-retirement. These are the people who are in their mid-50s. And the, the mid-50s, it said a lot of these people were less confident about their prospects than the retirees. And that's probably because, as we're going to hear later, you know, these people are realizing they're, they're cl- getting closer to retirement. The economy's been through a rough patch here in the, in the, in the last two or three years. 
and then they don't have pensions. Because remember, we have a big science project. I like to call it a big science project out there socially where we had for all these decades, people were getting these defined pensions where, hey, you work with us for 30 years, you're going to retire, we're going to pay you this lump sum of money for the rest of your life. And then the 80s came around and, and, and you know this new concept of saving for yourself through 401ks and other things came around. Well, those are, those are the people that are in their mid-50s now. These are the people when they started working in the 80s, they don't get pensions anymore. So they probably are a little more nervous because if they didn't do what they were supposed to be doing and saving, hyper-saving, they're probably a little nervous right now. So the first, the first tip for these pre-retirees was stay in the game. A Fidelity investment study of the balances of its 401k participants. Remember, Fidelity does a lot of 401ks, so this is probably a pretty good study. Um, 401k participants age 55 and up found a real benefit to perseverance. For those continuously contributing to their plans, doubled their average account balance in the past 10 years, ending the first quarter of 2010, which included the financial fiasco of 2008 and 9. And I'll tell you, guys, what you don't, you always pay attention to the data. Did you hear this study ended in the first quarter of 2010? Do y'all know what happened in the last two quarters of 2010? Huge. I mean, the fourth quarter alone, the S&P 500 made over 10%. Third quarter, Bo, wasn't it a pretty big number in the third quarter third, too? Third quarter, it was a, it was up pretty big too. So, so this study is probably downplayed what actual reality is. So, this is probably if you were looking, where is this? How is this skewed? It's actually skewed down because 2008 was awful. It really pushed numbers bad. So, for the fact that this has got just the first quarter of 2010 doesn't even have the third and fourth quarter of 2010 in it. These, this is skewed in a negative direction, so this is going to show you how powerful this is. It says, those people in the last 10 years, um, they pretty much doubled their account balances. Now, it said two-thirds of that doubling in value came from contributions from their savings, not investment appreciation. But you add the last two quarters and then the long term... Uh, it's much better off. And plus, I'll tell you, a lot of those people who weren't contributing because they were trying to time the market probably gave up. We're not, you know, this is the problem with market timers. When they get out, remember that I've done podcasts on the cycle the, the, of, of market emotions. Those people who get out at the worst times typically are missing out on the greatest investment opportunity because the old Warren Buffett saying, you want to be greedy when others are fearful and you want to be fearful when others are greedy. You know, it's that whole thing about buying when blood is in the street or whatever. You know, it, it, it's the typical Warren Buffett sayings. So a lot of these people are timing got out at the worst time. Bo, did you have anything? Because you looked like you, you had some, nope, I can tell now you're shocked I'm asking. <laughs> um, okay, the next section was um, catch up. Oh, well, let me back up one thing is because whenever there's a rock star or somebody big listed, it talks about John Bogle, who's the founder of, of Vanguard. It does say that um, Vanguard founder John Bogle advises that the percentage of your portfolio allocated to bonds and cash should equal your age. And it, it throws that in on that last section, just saying as you're getting into your 50s, you need to start thinking about as you get older, you know, making your portfolio a little more diversified, probably leaning more towards the conservative side as you get closer to retirement. So they threw in that, that John Bogle um, recommendation. Um, but the next tip of the 15 is catch up. It says retirees who said they were highly satisfied counted maxing out their contributions to an employer-sponsored employer retirement plan among their best steps. And remember, once you break 50, you can add more money to things. Roth IRAs, for instance. Once you're over 50, instead of just giving $5,000 a year to a Roth IRA, you can do $6,000 because they give you a $1,000 catch up. But check this out. 401ks and 403bs, you max out at 16.5 if you're under 50. Once you're over 50, you can put an additional $5,500 in there. So you can see very quickly that adds up a lot. You know, if you can add an additional $5,500 on top of the 16,500, catch-up contributions can really turbocharge your long-term savings. The next section it gave for the, these people in their mid-50s was pay off debt. And this is, I can't tell you how important, and I thought they really nailed this one when they gave this tip. It says, you need to pay, accelerate payments on your mortgage with an eye toward paying it off by retirement. That is the biggest thing that you can do to give yourself peace of mind. And it really, probably in that mid-50s, 
is is the perfect time to really putting an eye towards paying off debt. And it even goes into, and I like how they did this, uh, you know, whoever put this article together for Consumer Reports was really hitting it on all cylinders when they did is that a lot of people, because you will hear other financial professionals, you haven't heard it much recently because we've had a bad last few years in the investments, talking about 2007, 2008, but you, if we continue to have good years like 2009, 2010, you will hear this argument come up Mark my words, and I'm going ahead and telling you right now before it gets out of hand, pay attention to this, is the fact that, yes, when stock markets perform well, you would have earned a lot more money putting that money in the S&P 500 than you would have paying off your mortgage. But there's always that chance. That's a risk. When you do that, you can make an analytical argument all day long that you're better investing that money than paying off the debt because of the great returns. But think about if you get into another 2008 and you retire with that mortgage now you and your assets have lost you know 20 to 25%. You're going to feel sick. And I've told this and this isn't in this article but I've seen it because we manage money here. When you retire something happens. You realize that you no longer, you know, things get tough out there and you've already retired you can't get back into the workforce. So you have this new stress put upon you that you now are subject strictly to the to what's going on out there in the financial markets. Whereas in the past, you could go work with your hands, your back, your mind, and you could earn more money. Now you can't do that. So you're all at the whelms of what's going on with your money. So it's a brand new stress that most people who are, are still working don't know that's going to hit them until they fully retire. So there's a psychological component that if you can pay off your debt is tremendous. Y'all remember a few weeks ago I met on one of our podcasts, I had made the comment that because of everything, all the uncertainty going on in the financial markets, I'd quit paying off my mortgage as fast as I was because I was going to have my own mortgage paid off within the next 10 years. I got a, a, an email from one of our listeners that said, Brian, I don't care what's going on. Go ahead and pay it off because just the fact that I paid off my mortgage, I, I, I'm happy. You know, there's a psychological benefit. I mean, he was hitting on exactly the point I'm making here is that when you're debt-free, there's just a peace of mind about that. So don't let anybody try to sell you on the analytical arguments because they're putting a big discount on that psychological benefit. And I'll tell you, what they don't take into account on the psychological benefit is that there's probably going to be a saving grace that if you can be debt-free, you're going to be less likely to pull the trigger of doing something crazy with your investment assets, like going all to cash, if you know you have the peace of mind that you're completely debt-free. So there might be a, a, no, I don't know if anybody's ever studied that, but that psychology of keeping, staying fully invested because you made the smart decision of being debt-free probably is more beneficial than that spread between what you, you know, the low interest rates you had on your mortgage compared to what, you know, the stock market made. And Brian, the key term you hit on there was managing risks. Is it a bigger risk for the market to make money and you only make 6% instead of 8%? Or is it a bigger risk not to be able to cover your house note? Um, one of the things, the next section, I think that's a great point. The next section was budget for healthcare costs. And it said, you know, Fidelity Investments published a study last year showing that the typical couple retiring in 2010 would incur $250,000 and healthcare costs during their retirement years outside of their Medicare benefits. So that's outside. That's that's additional that you probably, the average person, is going to have to pay. I just did a show back on October 29th on health savings accounts. And um, I would encourage you if, you, if you're, you know, go check out that because there's a lot of opportunities. And the government recognizes this. You guys wonder, why does the government offer Roth IRAs? Why is the government offering these health savings accounts? They recognize that there are some unfunded things going on out there with Social Security, with Medicare. They're trying to encourage you to take care of it yourself. So they're giving you these tax-deferred ways to do it, so take advantage of it. Um, They did touch upon, I thought this was interesting, I thought this was really good that they did this, because you don't see a lot of people put numbers on this, is they talked about long-term care insurance, and they gave a website, longtermcare.gov. That's a government website. It says... To research average costs in your area, go to the National Clearinghouse for long-term care information. Um, the only thing I would say, because isn't this still the 50s, the, yeah, the mid-50-year-olds? Long-term care, if you're healthy, probably the sweet spot for buying that, if you are going to buy it, is probably in your 60s. I, you know, that's what, you know, when I've gone to investment um, conferences, that's kind of the sweet spot we found, assuming you're a healthy person. 
Um, but they, they've gone on, whereas they've got this list in the mid-50s, which probably not a bad time, but you know the sweet spot sometimes is in the 60s. If you, it says, if you expect your assets in retirement to be under 300000 you probably can't afford long-term care insurance. However, if you think you'll have more than $2 million, you can probably afford to pay for your own care. So they're kind of saying that donut hole of when you probably want to consider long-term care insurance is that 300000 to $2 million. So if you look at your net worth, excluding your house, your personal residence. That's where the kind of the donut hole. If you're one of these people that's worth over $2 million, you probably don't need it because you can pay for it on your own. If you're under 300000 you probably don't need it because you it's can't be afford drag. it. Yeah. It's going to drag you from me- meeting other savings goals. So if you're between 300000 to $2 million, you're probably in that sweet spot for looking at something. But now it's a timing issue. So somewhere between your 50s and 60s, we lean to- more towards the 60s on-, on looking at that type of thing. The next section, I think this is the last one for these mid-50s, yep, is the um, time your payout. I gave this exact advice to my own mother. It says, opting to receive your Social Security at age 62, you know, you're really kind of hurting yourself. If you don't need the money, don't take it at 62 because it says um, someone born in 1954 who decides to retire at 62, for instance, would get 25% less than he or she would get by waiting until the full retirement age at 66. It's the same advice I gave my mother. She didn't really need the money at that point because she had it. She was a retired teacher, had a pension coming in. I said, if you don't need the money, all you're going to do is pay more taxes and you're going to cut down what you're going to get in the long term. Um, it also says, be aware that each year you delay up to age 70 earns you up to about 8% a year. I mean, think about that. That's essentially an annuity for you. If you yeah. just put off paying Social Security, you have a, an annuity paying you 8%. There is a risk. I, I, you know, y'all know how much I hate Social Security, and the reason is, is because if you die, you're stuck. Mm-hmm. You know, because you know one thing about an annuity: you buy a deferred annuity, you die. You're probably going to get back what you put into it since you never exercised, you know, the, the the annuity and started taking payouts. Social Security doesn't work that way. If you die between that 62 to 66, your family members get 255 dollars. There's a chance that you know somebody is going to be able to get that uh, reduced benefit. But if you if the two spouses made about the same amount of money like my father did before he passed away, you're stuck. So there is a risk. Just want to be honest with you. But if you if you're healthy and you don't need the money, probably a good reason to consider waiting until you reach full retirement age. Now let's talk about the retirement years. These are people who, you know, getting into your 60s, your full retirement. Um, it says tread careful with annuities, and I thought this was an important one because we've been getting. Not so much now, but I will tell you, probably mid last year, we got a lot of calls from even some of our existing clients because we do work with a lot of retired individuals. Because remember, 2008 was such a fearful period, scared period, that a lot of your insurance people recognized there was a golden opportunity here. Is that people want to get this, you know, get any type of risk out of their portfolio because they didn't want to go through another 2008. So they started offering a lot of these annuities. I always tell people, be very careful. Just like you can buy a stock at the top of the market, you can buy products at the top of the market too. And if we've been through in a dreadful period of time in the financial markets, you're probably buying at the top for risk aversion. That's why you'll see people like Warren Buffett and others say it's actually more risky to not have stocks in your portfolio when things are getting their teeth kicked in than you are having them when things are rocking and rolling and going good. And the reason is because valuations get pushed down. So I don't know. Did I describe that very well, Bo? Yeah, let me ask a question. So, okay, so that being the case, when's the best time to start thinking about buying annuity annuity as far as the the market cycle goes? If things are rocking and rolling and interest rates are a respectable level, um, you know, right now interest rates are artificially low but if 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 we had a you know think about like 2006 or 7 when um, the financial markets were doing very well relatively and then you also had interest rates i can remember we had money market funds earning over five percent at that time five and a quarter five and a half percent not a bad time to consider diversifying your holdings into something like that but when risk everybody's scared can, you might be paying, you might be topping the market on the risk market if, you, if you're looking at that. Um, they go on to give you some proof. It says only 2% of working people and 1% of retirees named buying an annuity among their best steps they had taken toward 
um, retirement. Among the possible concerns, high management fees, stiff sales commissions, and the potential loss of cash value if you die prematurely. And we've done podcasts on that too. I don't, I don't need to pick on um, annuities too much. Um, the next one for the retirement group was it said follow the 4% rule. Withdraw 4% annually from your retirement funds has been shown to preserve your capital for at least 30 years in even strained economic environments, assuming you rebalance regularly. And that's, that's probably the easiest way to really do some quick retirement planning. Is if you know you take what you have that's available. If you're not going to sell your house during retirement, don't put that into the number. But take what you have available, multiply it by four percent. That's probably going to tell you what you could take out each year and be okay for retirement. It says the four percent rule protects disciplined investors in a variety of circumstances, whether they buy a managed payout fund or manage a fund themselves. And I'll throw out just a little for those of you who aren't good with algebra. If you're working right now and you want to know how much you need to save for retirement and you have a number in your head and you say, okay, I want to have $50,000 a year in retirement, take that $50,000, divide by 0.04, that's how much you need to save. That, that's your goal lump sum number. So it's some, we, we play around. With, that's one of the things I do when I, I do my, I'm kind of excited after the podcast, I'm going to do my annual net worth statement. And it's kind of fun to go see well, what fact, you know, gave it up today. Well, how much could it have already built up to where I could live forever off of, um, or not live forever, <laughs> but you know, where the money would last until I decide to leave this place. Um, fill up a big bucket is their next tip. It says in a simple version of this approach, the first bucket should hold enough cash to cover two years of living expenses. The first year's portion should be liquid, say in bank accounts or money market funds. The second year's expenses can be invested in laddered CDs Talks about the second bucket is short-term and intermediate-term bonds, and that third bucket is hold stocks. It's basically, when I saw the bucket, I've heard this bucket formula in the past discussed, and what they're trying to do is get you to think about your time horizon and need of money. You know, because anything you need in the next five to seven years probably doesn't need to be in something that's going to be volatile like the financial markets. You need to be diversified. You need to have some things you can get to very quickly, and that's your cash investments, things that, you know, you're not going to need for two to five years. You can put in some short-term bonds, anything over five years. Now you can start looking at a long-term investment horizon. I had made a comment here. It said, because um, one of the, it's, they talked about in that second bucket, a portion of the bond bucket, say one-third can be in short-term bond ladder, which can serve as an additional emergency fund and generate cash to, to withdraw from. With this approach, even in an emergency, quote, the quote's important here, says, you won't be forced to sell at the bottom of the market, notes Harold Avinsky, a certified financial planner in Coral Gables, Florida. The only reason I'm reading this statement is because it said a certified financial planner in Coral Gables, Florida. I'm sitting here looking. I think Bo has a book by him on his <laughs> shelf. Um, he's a rock star in the industry, and it cracks me up when I'm reading an article and John Public, John Q. Public reads this, and they're like, oh, great, Harold Avinsky. And I read it, and I'm like, hey, he's not just a certified financial planner. He's, a, he's an he's industry. A yeah, he's, a, he's an industry expert. So it kind of, I, I don't know if the person who wrote the article recognizes that Harold's kind of a big deal, but it said a certified financial planner. I thought that was off topic, but it was kind of interesting to me. Um, hedge against inflation. Y'all know this is important. You know, I saw a Today Show piece a few days ago where we're paying the same price for a lot of products, but they're 20% smaller. Mm -hmm. Your dishwashing detergent, your toilet paper. And you don't even um, notice it. Your that was orange what juice. About. I mean, what I thought was interesting is that things that are standards of measurement, like a half gallon, they're getting creative with it. They're taking a five to six ounces out of a half gallon. How is that possible? A half gallon's a half gallon. Same thing, a pint. You think you're buying a pint of ice cream? Nope. You're buying 14 ounces of ice cream. They're taking a few ounces off. So, Pay attention to that stuff because inflation is getting in there. It's just companies have gotten so smart, they hide it from you. That's inflation, by the way, when they keep things the same price but give you less of it. That is the inflation at its best. It's just creative marketing ways to hide it. It says 5% of your money um, should be considered allocating to tips and I-bonds. You, you can buy tips, and it says you know tips are, are really real return type funds. Um, Bo just gave me, because we're getting close, we need to wrap this up if I'm going to talk about the statements. Fortunately, we're almost done here. It says, work longer. It says, 20% of our survey, and this is the last one of the 15 tips, 20% of your survey respondents worked part-time in retirement. Um, I thought this was funny. It said, that, but the psychic benefit of continued employment also was important to many. 
I don't know if it, should that have been psychological benefit because when I hear psychic benefit, I think about a guy who goes to the races, puts his you know the swami who puts his fingers to his head and goes, "Cash for money is going to be the horse that comes in first day." That's kind of the psychic ability, or, or you know somebody who's going to pick the next lotto numbers. But uh, there's a psychological benefit uh, if you if you want to stay and work and then stay working during retirement. It says thirty eight percent said they enjoyed work too much to give it up. Hey, Bo. That's me. <laughs> Sorry. You're going to be stuck with me for quite a while. It says they often, um, uh, you know, one thing it said here is in spite of being employed part-time, 45% of semi-retired workers under 65 were already collecting Social Security. That's a disaster. And this is probably a good place to close out is it says that's often not a wise choice for those below full retirement age. For every $2 you earn above $14,160, Social Security deducts 1% of your benefits. And I've had that happen with employees. Here we 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 employ some people who are over, um, you know, sixty, and I had that same thing happen. Gave a bonus one year. Guess who got all that bonus? The government, because what they did was the bonus that I gave, um, pretty much was offset with the social security <laughs> reduction. So it was kind of a bummer. So be very mindful if you're going to continue working, you might want to defer taking that social security. Um, I hope that was helpful. I really enjoyed that because I like those type of articles because they give me. Um, kind of that, that attaboy, you know, where you, things that you're doing in your own financial life, you get to see kind of somebody say, yeah, that's the way you need to be doing, doing it. Plus I liked here on the money guy show, being able to follow it because then we could give our, you know, give you some of our insight being professional money managers. Now I did want to close out the show. We've gone a little long, but I still want to do this. We did a show called certain, certainly uncertain where I talked about tax codes, and the tax changes, because there's a lot of de de debate about whether tax rates will go up in 2011. And I had gotten involved in the fact that I thought I had a unique experience in the fact that I could look at my, my I do a few tax returns because I am a CPA by training. Um, and I do 52 re individual returns. I think I'd said 53. Thank God you guys didn't catch that I was off on, on that a little bit. But 52 was the actual number. Um, 19 had AGIs, adjusted gross incomes under 100,000. 25 were between 100 and 250. And then eight clients actually made over $250,000. And I listed the averages and I also listed their effective tax rates. And I thought this was interesting was that the effective tax rate for those making under 100000 was 9.6%, meaning that's the average just federally that doesn't include any of their state taxes. It doesn't include Social Security or any of that, you know, the FICA taxes or self-employment. It's just the federal effective tax rate was 9.6%. For those between 100 and 250, it was 184 and for the, the guys making over 250000 their average tax rate was 262 But here's what I was really trying to focus on, and, and you guys had some great comments, was of the 19, I wanted to focus on who were the self-employed people. Who were the people that were creating jobs? And, and of the, the 19 individuals that were below 100000 two of them were business owners, and they employed 16 people. In the next category, the 100 to 250 we had... Um, three business owners and they employed eight people. And then in the last group, we had five of the eight people making 250,000 were also small business owners. What was interesting is that the person under a hundred, the two people under a hundred thousand employed 16, the three between 150 employed eight. And then the five that were business owners that made over 250 employed 112. Now there was one thing I totally should have said that, that there was two people under a hundred thousand that employed 16 Fifteen of those was actually from one gentleman who used to be a big income earner, but the downturn in this economy has kicked them in the teeth, and now they make well under a hundred thousand. The business owner does, but he still employs fifteen people. So it would make made my point even stronger. But you guys were right. I want to kind of. I was just saying that maybe we need to be careful about picking on the people making over two fifty because a lot of them are probably small business owners that are employing a lot of people. And some of y'all took note with that. Now, I just wanted to kind of give you a little feedback because I had some some comments. Peter Pittman, um, and I, I'm giving his full name because he had put his full name on the website, so I don't think he'll, be, he'll mind. He says, most studies consistently show that less than 2% of the self-employed find themselves in the highest marginal tax bracket. Furthermore, your slice of America is not at all representative of the breakdown and income earners throughout the country. And that's, and Peter's exactly right. I should have probably told everybody, this is not scientific. My percentages probably do not tie to the national average because if you're hiring a CPA versus going to like an H&R Block or just buying TurboTax, you probably, there's a bias towards a little more sophistication anyway. 
Um, I did think that the one thing that it's not really disagreeing, I just want to clarify, is that Peter had said most studies consistently show that less than 2% of self-employed find themselves in the highest marginal tax bracket, and that's probably true too. Um, The point I was just trying to make is that 2%, even though most small business owners are not in that 2%, that 2% might employ a very large number of the working people of the country. That's the point I was trying to make because my, my unscientific numbers showed that, is that, that a lot of people who were making over 250 had bigger companies that were employing a lot more people. So it might have a more direct impact on employment. Um, we had a lot of comments from this next individual, George. George, this, this is what kind of I thought was humorous. Says George... Listen to our show, and he, he wrote a comment on December 14th, and then a few days went by, got closer to Christmas, and then George wrote another comment on December 23rd, and then another day went by, and then he wrote a comment on December 24th, and all of them kind of had a theme, and I kind of want to, I think George makes a point that I think a lot of people out there in the public think, and I want to just give some clarification. It said, I, did, I agree that most employers are small business owners. But the tax cuts we are trying to restore did not help this past decade. At the end of the decade, more jobs were lost than gained, less jobs gained than the previous decade, and the economy got worse. How do the tax cuts help the economy and when they did not do anything in the last decade? Now, for, this is what I think a lot of people in the public don't catch. Keeping the tax rates where they were, there's nothing, nothing stimulative about that. That's not going to make things better. It's not, because you're basically we haven't changed anything. We've kept the same tax rates as what we've been working with for a number of years now. All it's doing is preventing further damage. As we're starting to get a little bit of recovery going here, it's just keeping people from changing their behavior that, that will derail this thing. There is nothing that's going to make the economy grow faster by just keeping tax rates the same. So George is making a point that... Um, but I think it, it, he's, he's missing. He's thinking, and, and the press is screwing this up is what's going on. The press is making like this is something that's going to add stimulus to the economy by keeping these rates low. Really, that's not the case. It's just keeping further harm from occurring. It, it's not really helping anything out. Um, I'll jump over to, and I will tell you, the tax cuts did help us in the past decade because do you all remember the, the little thing called 9-11 where we did have the terrorist attacks. And I'll tell you, being a financial guy that was working up in Atlanta in a high rise on the day that I remember we had an investment meeting the day that those planes were hit in New York, a little piece of, of my capitalistic, you know, wanting to make money died for a temporary period of time because, you know, that happened. It derailed a lot of us. And I guarantee I'm not the only person that felt that way as I was like, you know, wow, this, this, this world is crazy. So a lot of people got derailed. Um, from thinking about, you know, building a business, doing things, um, lowering the tax rates during that period of time did help, I think, I think help pull us out. And the proof is what, what I think people need to see is, is that tax collections, you know, in 2006 and seven were actually much, much higher than they were in, in the past. I mean, tax rates don't really, and this is something, let me make sure I say this correctly. Tax rates aren't so much an indicator of how much you're going to collect in tax revenue as in what the growth of the economy is. Growth of the economy is what drives your tax collections. If you're in a fast-growing economy or a stable-growing economy, that's where your good tax collections come from. Raising tax rates does not necessarily get you a lot more in tax revenue, as we've seen in Oregon and other states that have seen a huge migration of their wealthy individuals leave is because they raised the tax rates. New York, Oregon, other states raised them, and all, what do you see? What do you see is you see a lot of migration from those areas. Um, it, you can see it in the census data. You know, I did this show, and then a week later, the census data came out on where we were picking up more house seats and which um, states lost were losing house seats. Uh, you know, from uh, up there in Washington, and it was very interesting is that the states that picked up a lot of uh, uh, seats were typically low tax states. The states that were losing, you know, seats and, and, uh, were, were usually high-tax states, and there, there is a correlation there. And I, I think Bo's getting bored with, with my discussion. Um, I wanted to say George also wrote a couple more questions. This is the one for Tony. How will the inheritance tax break for billionaires will help the economy? How will these people help the economy? And really the estate tax, you know, the, the big thing there is two things. It's, it's the... 
it's a moral question. Um, you know, if you pay income taxes on your income all these years, what right, if you, just because you're disciplined and save the money, what right does the government have after you've paid all your taxes to come in and just tax you just for because you were disciplined and saved the money? There is a moral thing there. Um, also, I've dealt personally with families, you know, if, if, the, if the cap on estate taxes is, um, is only a million dollars, what if your family was fortunate enough to buy um, lake property, 40 years ago, and now this lake that your parents, you know, who bought a, you know, a cheap little lake house has now appreciated significantly. Um, should you have, should your family have to lose that when you pass away? Should your family have to lose that, that piece of property just because it's worth more? Or how about the family farm? If you, if you own a family farm or a small business, should you lose it just because you died? Why, that, that doesn't give much. There's something there. So I was kind of glad to see this $5 million. Because you you figure two spouses with five million—that's ten million. That's that's reasonable. I I I don't have any problem with that. Um, it says all, his last question was how cutting the unemployment benefits help the economy. How will these people buy anything, even working for McDonald's? The unemployment—I I really don't want to go there. The only thing I would say is that the only thing there's nothing wrong with unemployment. It's just how long people get unemployment can be concerning. Because let's face it, the world is an ever-evolving, ever-changing place. Some jobs just aren't coming back. So if if you keep paying people for jobs that are never going to exist, they're not. They're probably not going to change their behavior to go retool, go get re-educated into a new career that that's going to be more beneficial to them. That's the only thing I would say about that to to George. And the last one from George was one additional question about the people concerned with the deficit. How will the new extra tax cut for the rich will help the deficit? It kind of goes back to his original thing. This is not really an extra tax cut. It's just keeping tax rates the same. It's, there's nothing stimulative about keeping the rates the same. It's just keeping the economy from getting derailed from recovering. That's, that's really it, George. The, the other person, Rob, was a small business owner who made a comment and he's just saying, hey, I want to know, you know, I'm paraphrasing. He basically just want to know what was going to be going on so he could plan as a small. And that's kind of what I said. If tax rates are going to go up, fine. Let's let them go up on everybody and then let's do it. You know, it, 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 so we can go ahead and start planning and not have that uncertainty. And then we had another um, Peter who wrote us. And Peter wrote a great email. I wish I could go into the whole thing, but it, it's a pretty good long email. Um, he made a point. He says, um, that raises, an, uh, this is the one I felt like I need to draw attention. It says, that raises another claim I have always been skeptical about. It seems pretty unlikely that even a small business owner or entrepreneur would let the tax rate dictate the future of their business. I can't imagine a small business owner sitting around thinking to himself, you know, I've got this great idea to expand my business. I could probably double my sales and hire three new employees. But you know what? I would have to pay an extra few percent of that additional income in taxes. So forget it. I won't do it. Who would run the business like that? Is there anyone out there who would turn down a dollar because the government is going to take 20 cents of it? You still end up with 80 cents you didn't have before. And for the wealthy, maybe the number is more like 40% and you get to keep 60, but it's still 60 cents more than you had. Here's, here's the only thing, Peter. Investments don't happen immediately, meaning that you invest the money, you don't receive a return immediately. That would be true. Nobody would say, I'm not going to invest in this company. If they knew the dollar spent, they were going to get a dollar, you know, forty back from that investment. It doesn't. It doesn't work that way. What happens is, I'll, I'll give you the perfect example. When I hired Bo here, who's my associate, I hired Bo at the beginning of two thousand eight. We all know what happened in two thousand eight. The market went bad, really bad. My income, personally, and may, I don't know if I've said this before. Maybe I should be careful. I, it went down forty percent. My personal income went down forty percent in 2008 because it was not just the stock market it was that i took on additional salaries i added more staff around here and i didn't get that money back until probably now i'm back to where i was uh, starting 2011 i think my income is going to be back where it was in 2008 and now i think i'm going to actually get some more money on top of it meaning that my investment has paid off but there was a jump a leap of faith that I made by taking a risk and investing in my company, adding more staffing up, but it hurt because my income went down substantially because not only did I have the market going down, meaning we get paid less, I took on additional overhead with investing in the company by bringing on staff. There is a direct correlation is if people think that the economy is not going to recover for two to three years, 
They're going to hold off on hiring. They're going to hold off on, on doing things that would help us all out. The, the, Bo, is that the point? Well, I was just going to make the – I was going to ask the question, if instead of hiring me in the first part of 2008, it was at the latter part of 2008, in November, December, would you have hired me? No. Absolutely not. No. And that, that's the difference. I, I had hired you, and then I had gotten addicted to, to – I knew you were a good, talented individual, you know, as well as the other adjustments we had made, and at that point, you do it. You know, and, and, and I'll tell you, this is the first year we're now ready to start hiring again. We're, we're, you know, we're probably, we're looking at that process right now. So uncertainty does keep you from making decisions. But Peter had a great email. I want you guys, I like that you guys don't always agree with me. I think it's good to have a nice, healthy debate and conversation over things. Um, so, you know, leave us some comments. We hope you listen. We hope, you know, I know this went a little long, but we're excited about 2011. Um, please tell your friends and family about the Money Guy podcast. As I said in the previous, um, at the opening of the show, we don't have a big corporation out there supporting us. Nobody's marketing this show. You guys are the marketing team. So go tell three to four people about us. Also, my people who are other financial advisors who like to listen to us to get market commentary and other things, go check out advisorskills.com. That's the podcast we've created just for financial advisors or people considering getting into that field of study. You can go check that out. We'll be back in about two weeks. We will be back in two weeks because we're now in a new year. We're going to get the schedule back on track. Um, if you have any comments, write me at brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com. We'll talk to you in two weeks. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. 